Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Sloane, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender. And today we're bringing you the story of the Cheshire murders. And no, this is not Alice in Wonderland related. <laughs> I wish it was. No. No. This is a kidnapping that, I mean, no kidnappings really go well because they're kidnappings. But Trish said this one went downhill real quick, real fast, real bad, real fast. So we will see what happens. back to another round of bartending with Sloan. Today we are going to talk about cathead vodka. And this is something that honestly I kind of forgot about until Trish brought some sample shots <laughs> to our party. But cathead vodka is from Mississippi and I am a Mississippi girl. Before I moved to Mobile, I actually pretty much only drank tequila and cathead vodka. And I was not, Tito's was not even on the radar. So for me in Mississippi, it was cathead vodka. So I just want to spread the love because I, as somebody from Mississippi, I feel like a lot of people look down on Mississippi and like we're the bottom of the shoe. We have no contributions to society. And really that's bullshit. <laughs> we gave y'all Oprah. We gave you Jimmy Buffett. We gave you open heart surgery. Mississippi gave us a lot of things, but they also gave us Cathead Vodka. So straight from Cathead Distillery's website, I'm just going to read you like their history that they put up. And they, they are the first legal distillery in the state of Mississippi. Cathead was founded in 2010 by friends and blues fans, Austin Evans and Richard Patrick. Located in the heart of downtown Jackson, which is not an easy place to survive, <clears throat> the distillery currently produces seven award-winning small batch spirits. Cathead Cat Original Vodka, 10 out of 10, do recommend. Like, if you love Tito's, you will love Cathead, in my opinion. Cathead Honeysuckle Vodka. And this one is delicious. A lot of places, a lot of restaurants and bars in Mississippi use this as a specialty cocktail. It's just... It's kind of like the honey moonshine that we had, yeah. but not as sweet. So for me, it's a little bit easier to... I know that my store carries it. We will have to get that one day <laughs> and play <laughs> around with it. Um, but Cathead Bitter Orange Vodka. I would be willing to try that. Bristow Gin. No, thank you. Hoodoo Chicory Liquor. I would give it a go. And Old Soul Bourbon Whiskey. So that's where Old Soul comes from. Okay. Is Cathead. As well as a line of canned cocktails, Cathead Sparkling. Cathead Distillery was named a 2020 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Spirits producer and is celebrated not only for its authentic products, but a strong commitment to their community. So what is a Cathead? The term Cathead is a compliment in Mississippi. First coined back in the day by blues musicians as a nod to artists they respect. 
Mississippi artists and musicians went on to use cat heads in many forms of folk art as a way to pay the rent and share their legacies. Mississippi repealed Prohibition in 1966. We talked about that in my Prohibition of Mobile, the New Year's episode last year. But Mississippi was the last state to repeal Prohibition. 44 years later, lifelong friends and blues fans founded Cathead Distillery. Cathead is proud to be the first and oldest distillery in the state of Mississippi. And that's crazy considering that they opened in 2010. Our community, Mississippi, is the proud state where blues music began. And that is a story that I plan on going into because Sam Cooke supposedly met the devil at a crossroad in Mississippi in the Delta. And that's why he became what he became. So I really want to do that as a story one day, but like, it's very overplayed. (laughs) You probably heard it. There's a lot of movies and whatnot, but just once again, as a Mississippi girl, it's something that I've always felt close to. But anyways, Mississippi, home of the blues, a genre that was deeply influenced, that has deeply influenced all forms of American music. We work hard to bring honor to the meaning of Cathead through our philanthropic support of live music and artisans alike. Cathead also donates a portion of proceeds to nonprofits that contribute to the region's abundance, arts, and cultures. Cathead Distillery is an event-driven facility and a place for both locals and tourists to enjoy spirit tastings, live music, community, and a cold beer. And to that, I say, sign me up. That is the Mississippi that I want everybody to remember (laughs) at the end of the day. Not the no-shoes-wearing, racist, not to say that that doesn't exist, but it's time to move into the future and, like, re-identify ourselves and... Then hopefully the citizens of Mississippi will get in line and follow with the rebrand. Yeah. Probably not. It's going to take a while. But regardless of any of that, I highly suggest you try Cathead Vodka if you can try it near you. You would be supporting a great cause and for a good liquor. But without further ado, we'll kick you off to the case. The Pettit family was an average American household family, however you want to think of that but William Pettit Jr. was an endocrinologist and his wife Jennifer Hawk Pettit was a pediatric nurse so yeah I think this is New England it's a little pricey up there so Mm -hmm. I mean it's not uncommon to have like basically a doctor and a nurse They had two daughters, Haley, who was 17, and Michaela, who was 11. Haley had just graduated high school and had plans to study medicine at Dartmouth. Michaela loved to garden and to cook. She made dinner often for the family. The Pettits lived in an affluent suburb of Cheshire, Connecticut. And on July 22, 2007, the family became front page news. So prior to July 22nd, Jennifer and her younger daughter, Michaela, went to the local shop to, like, 
basically shop for some groceries because Michaela was going to make dinner that evening and she just needed a couple of ingredients. And this happened at about 7.30. Um, as they were shopping, 26-year-old Joshua Comis... It's Komischewski, I think is how it's said. I literally put like little like pronunciation things so I could... Because when you hear it pronounced during, like, all the little documentaries and that on this case, like, you're like, oh, yeah, I could say that. And then you're looking at it, you're going, eh. Mm-hmm. But, yes. It makes sense until I actually have to make my tongue and mouth work. Right. But, yes. Joshua spotted them as they were shopping. And he decided he was going to follow them home. Joshua was on parole for drug-related crimes. He would allegedly break into and rob homes of affluent families as a way to fund his habits. Some people say he also had an attraction for young girls, and that could be why he targeted this family. After seeing the home and young Michaela, Joshua put his plan into action. But he didn't work alone. He had an accomplice, Stephen Hayes, who at the time of the crime identified as male, but has since come out as a transgender woman. Don't know if that's by choice or if that's a way of seeking leniency. Don't know. But... I think, for the most part, I they never gave a new name. So I think, for the most part, I just refer to them as Hayes through this. I can't remember. I did these notes a couple weeks ago. <laughs> um, but the two had an exchange of text messages stating their excitement to get started on the crime couple of the texts said, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. The same. <laughs> Hayes then... Not for the same reason. Right? I same. was like, ugh. Why you gotta bring the margarita into this? Hayes then asked if they were still on. And they go back and forth for a little bit. And then Joshua texts, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. And Hayes replied... Dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. <laughs> right? I'm like, ugh. So funny. Hayes was under the assumption they would be robbing the family in the middle of the night and leaving them bound, and that was all. When they arrived in the early hours of July 23rd, they found Dr. Pettit asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Joshua had entered the house through the basement, and I've seen two different things. They either say that before he entered the house or while he was coming up the stairs, he found a bat, mm -hmm. and he picked it up and brought it with him. But, yeah, it's a, either way, he found a bat, he took it with him, and when he entered the sunroom, he struck Dr. Pettit four or five times with the bat. 
He then took him to the basement, and together, him and um, Hayes bound his wrists and ankles using zip ties and rope to a beam. So, William, who was Dr. Pettit, said that he heard one of them say, basically, like, if he moves, put two bolts in him. The two robbers then went to each of the girls' rooms and to Jennifer's, and they bound them in their respective rooms. They were bound to the bedposts, and a pillowcase was put over their heads. After all were tied up, they began ransacking the house for cash. Things one does. Right. (laughs) Things took a turn for the worse when they decided there wasn't enough valuables to satisfy them, though. While searching the house, they found out that the family had a checking account with $30,000 to $40,000 in it. And around 9 a.m. on July 23rd, Hayes took Jennifer to a nearby Bank of America to withdraw $15,000. So they weren't going to take it all, just half. I'm like, dude, (laughs) should have just taken it all. But um, Hayes stayed in the car while Jennifer went inside and Jennifer told her situation to the bank teller because they were basically telling her, look, you can't do this. You you need your husband here to be able to do this. And right. <laughs> and she was like, and she spilled it to the bank teller what was going on and that. And so the bank teller, told her manager, who then called 911 and stated, we have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The manager told the operator that she looked petrified, but others later say that she looked calm. So it's just kind of a, I guess, however you want to perceive it. Up for interpretation. Yes. But here's the thing. You have someone there that says, like, you know, they're basically being kidnapped. Their husband and children are at the house. Like, they need this. Wouldn't you try to stall the best you can without it being obvious that you're stalling? No. They got her her money and let her leave and walk out of the bank while the manager was still on the phone with the 911 operator. Police literally missed her, like, leaving the parking lot Mm -hmm. by only a couple of minutes. That would have been me. Don't lie. I don't want any trouble. Just here's your money. Get the fuck out. So, while Hayes and Jennifer were at the bank, Joshua decided he wasn't just gonna sit around the house and wait for them to show back up. Nah. Why would he do that? So instead, Joshua decided to go into 11-year-old Michaela's room and proceeded to sexually assault her. And if it wasn't bad enough that he did that, he decided he was going to record it on his phone. 
When they returned from the bank, Hayes reportedly raped Jennifer at the request of Joshua as a way to square things up. I guess basically referring to he did it to Michaela, so now he's got to do something to either Jennifer or the other daughter, I guess. It's unclear exactly when, but between 9.30 and 9.50 a.m., Hayes then strangles Jennifer, and then they proceed to pour gasoline throughout the house and over Jennifer. Hayes also poured gasoline on Michaela and Haley, who are both still alive and tied to their beds with the pillowcases still over their heads. Once they were done pouring the gasoline, one of the men lit a match and set the house on fire. While all this was happening upstairs, William was downstairs in the basement. He managed to free himself and escape out of either like a basement window or like a... Mm -hmm. they there. It's depending on where you read it and stuff and even like different programs that have done this. They kind of change up. They just say he was able to escape out of the basement. And he crawled across the lawn. And he saw his neighbor. Who he called out for. And the neighbor came over to him. And didn't even really recognize him at the time. Because of how badly he was beaten. And while the like neighbor's trying to assess. Like you know what's going on. And all this. Police like ambushed the men. Because they were like, are these accomplices? Are these victims? Like, what? But they, like, they basically ambush them. Weapons drawn. And that, I'm like, I get it. You don't know what's going on. But also, you see a man that is bloodied beyond recognition. And you're going to pull your gun on him? So, while the police are basically ambushing these two men trying to figure out what if they're good or bad that's when the house goes up in flames makes sense mm-hmm. best timing William starts yelling the girls are in the house and that's when the police finally turn and see the flames and decide they can't go in they need to call for like fire mm-hmm. and they get William like basically down like to safety and he's transported to the hospital he is the lone survivor of this horrific crime the girls unfortunately passed due to smoke inhalation The two criminals fled the scene in the Pettit's car, but due to police being called by the bank teller, cruisers had been stationed down the road blocking it. So the men tried to crash their way through and instead basically got themselves stuck, which led to their arrest. Sounds about right. So basically as for the murders and the timeline... Like, they've been heavily looked into. And right away, we see that 
things are kind of worrying. The home invasion lasted for about seven hours because when they raided the home, it was late at night. And when they realized that they didn't have all the goods they basically wanted, they had to sit around and wait for a bank to be open. But while they were waiting for a bank to open, Hayes left to go purchase the gasoline, making many think that the murders were premeditated. Another point that makes like my blood boil is that these men were both on parole for previous burglaries and like other crimes and stuff, but yet there was no surveillance on these men whatsoever. There was no police checking in on them, nothing. Lastly, so the police were called when Jennifer was at the bank. Police got to the residence and were posted, like, basically around the residence before the house was set ablaze. And this led to the community and to, like, the existing family to basically question how the police handled the crime. Because there's a lot of people that said, maybe Jennifer wouldn't still be here, but those girls possibly could. So, police were heavily criticized by the family and community. Like, 30 minutes went by from the time the phone call was made to the time that the house caught on fire. So, like, it doesn't seem like a long time, but, like, if you sit there for 30 minutes, it feels like an eternity. If you're at work for 30 minutes. (laughs) It feels like you've been there for five hours. (laughs) If I'm just sitting there, 30 minutes can pass like nobody's business. Yeah. But work time... It's a whole other ballgame. So, like we said, police were outside while Jennifer was inside being raped and strangled to death. They were outside when the gasoline was poured. There was no attempt made to call the house to even talk to these men. SWAT came, and that was a mess as well because they left their, like, the SWAT vehicle without their armored vests, so then they had to circle back to go get the vest, which then delayed them entering the home and doing, like, their job and that. So, like, there was so much that, like, law enforcement just failed this family. We're so shocked. (laughs) And like I said, we don't know if Jennifer would be alive if police had stepped in sooner. But it's very likely that these girls could be. The outcome could have been completely different. But also it couldn't. Like. The house probably wouldn't have been set on fire. Jennifer, like I said, probably wouldn't have been alive. But I do believe the girls possibly could have been alive. So, her, like I said, the girls died from smoke inhalation, but what's heartbreaking about when they found the girls after they, like, were able to, like, extinguish the, like, fire and then enter the house was when they found Haley's body, they soon realized that she had managed to escape her restraints and run out of her bedroom and into the hallway where she collapsed and died. 
Her body was found at the top of the staircase with third and fourth degree burns on her feet. So, like we said, the men were caught and brought into custody. And they immediately started pointing fingers at each other as to whose idea it was, who did what. Basically, who was the guilty one, who wasn't as guilty, I guess. You're both guilty. You both killed three people. So, in a wild accusation, Joshua actually blamed Dr. Pettit for the murders. He claimed that he could have saved his family if he had wanted to. From every, like, report I read, this man is lucky that he was even, like, conscious enough to make it out of his house. Mm -hmm. You want him to come up the stairs, possibly overpower two men, and free his family? And make it out of the house? Yeah. Stephen Hayes faced trial first, then Joshua. Dr. Pettit testified at both trials. Both men were found guilty and sentenced to death. And Hayes was convicted in 2010 and Joshua in 2011. Jennifer's sister at first wasn't sure if she thought the men should be sentenced to death. But after seeing the rap sheets and then knowing the, like, basically horrors that her family went through, she was like, screw this. Yes, they deserve it. Unfortunately, these men never saw the death penalty because Connecticut in 2015 abolished the death penalty. So that made their sentences commuted to life sentences instead. I know we've said this before. We are both very iffy on death penalty, but... This is a case that I would definitely agree with the death penalty. The Pettit home has since been torn down, and William, with the help of the community, has turned it into a small garden to help remember Jennifer and the girls, but also make something beautiful as, out of something that was so tragic. The like grandparents and the aunts and that all go and visit and put flowers and make sure, like, that it's being well taken care of. William Pettit has gone on to live his life with the blessing of Jennifer's family. He became a state representative and has since remarried. And him and his current wife have a child together. And he is still close to Jennifer's family as well. So at least he was able to move on. I know in some of the documentaries I watched, they all reference his, I guess, eulogy that he gave at the funerals for the girls and his wife. And they just said, like, this man was just barely out of the hospital. He's still recovering himself. And they said that he gave such a moving, like, eulogy. And I can only imagine. I mean, I was a wreck at... My uncle's funeral at my grandma's, I think I was just still, like, in shock that she was gone. 
But yeah, I say kudos to that man for being stronger than I think I could ever be. But you never know until you're in that situation. And I hope I never am. But Amen. that is the Cheshire murders. Like I said, there's a few different um, little documentaries that I found. I know there's one on Discovery Plus that I actually watched. It was done by People Magazine Investigates. And it's actually... Um, if you want to watch that exact episode, it's from season two, episode four, and it's called Connecticut Horror Story. So if you have Discovery Plus and you would like to actually like see some real interviews from like the family, that's definitely one to check out. But I guess with that being said, I will kick you off to the last call. Welcome back to another Last Call with Sloan. Today, I figured that we could go to the Wonderland and talk about fun facts about Alice in Wonderland. So one, Alice was based on a real girl. She was the daughter of Carol's boss, Henry Lytle, the dean of Christ Church College at Oxford, where Carol taught mathematics. Number two, her siblings inspired the story, too. Carol formed a friendship with Henry, his wife, Lorena, and their entire family. He had photographs of them. There's Alice, Ina, Harry, and Edith. And they are all the children. And like I said, there's Lorena and Henry. So the little sisters and the Dormouse's story in Alice in Wonderland, Elsie, Lacey, and Tilly are references to their three daughters. Kind of. Okay. Kind of. Because Lorena is the wife, but it's Lorena Charlotte's initials become LC, LC, LC. And Lacey is an anagram of Alice, and Tilly is short for Matilda, which is a nickname that was given to Eve. All right. Three, it was almost titled Alice and Elfland, to which I would have been very disappointed <laughs> that because it doesn't have the same flow. It doesn't, and it's not Christmassy. Yeah. When you say elves, I think Christmas. So it was originally titled Alice's Adventures Underground when Carol gave a handwritten copy to Alice Liddell. By the time it was published, the name had been changed to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But he went through other titles along the way, including Alice's Hour in Elfland, Alice Among the Fairies, and Alice Among the Goblins. That last one could have been a horror book. <laughs> Number four, Lewis Carroll never would have written down the story. But on a boating trip up the Thames in the summer of 1862, Carroll spun a fantastic tale for Alice Liddell and her sisters. But after that, the kids pestered him to retell the story. Carroll even wrote in his diary about telling the interminable Alice's adventures. So he eventually wrote the story down and gave it to Alice for Christmas in 1864. The original was half as long as the version later published and did not include scenes like the Mad Hatter or the Cheshire Cat. So thank you for going back and redoing it. <laughs> Carol based a character in Alice in Wonderland after himself. Not one that I would have thought, but according to legend in the book, Carol alludes to the pivotal boat trip down the Thames 
by putting the participants into the story as birds. He was the dodo, named after his real last name, Dodson, Dodskin, Dodgson. The author had a documented tendency to stammer, so do I, and the story is that he would introduce himself as motherfucker. Exactly (laughs) what I just did. The the Dodson. Exactly what the fuck I just did. Number six, Carol saw things the way Alice did. In addition to partial deafness and other health complications, Carol suffered from a rare neurological disorder that causes hallucinations and makes objects appear larger or smaller than they are. The disease was not discovered until 1955 by English psychiatrist John Todd. Eventually, it was named Alice in Wonderland Syndrome or Todd Syndrome. Number seven, the Cheshire cat climbed a real tree. In the garden behind the Liddell home at Christchurch College in Oxford stands a tree that is said to have inspired the famous feline's perch. So you know where we have to go. Number eight, the author's name wasn't really Lewis Carroll. Most authors have pen names. No big deal. Charles Lutwidge Dodson started using pen name using the pen name in 1856 when he published a romantic poem. It was a play on a Latin translation of his real first and middle names. Other options he gave the editor to choose from was Edgar Cuthwellis, Edgar U.C. Westhill, and Lewis Carroll. I feel like Lewis Carroll definitely just flows off the tongue best. Yeah. Nine, it was first made into a movie in 1903. Directors Cecil Hepworth and Percy Stowe made the story into a 12-minute film, which made it the longest film produced in Britain at the time. Since then, it's inspired more than 50 TV or film adaptations and sequels. 10. Thank Carol for phrases like, mad as a hatter. Duh. Right? It's one of my favorite things. And we're all a little mad here. (laughs) No, Lewis Carroll did not invent this term for crazy. The phrase used to describe how hat makers often got dementia from the mercury used in curing felt had been around since the early 1800s. But Carroll, a marketing genius, popularized and licensed it. Alice and her friend adorned cookie tins and postage stamp cases. He was the first children's book author to license characters, so his Mad Hatter took on a life of his own. And nobody... Nobody does the Mad Hatter like Johnny Depp. Yeah. Cheers. Other notable, famous idiom is idiot, idiom, idiot, idiot, idiom, idioms. Yes. That come from this book Tweedledee and Tweedledum, <laughs> Cheshire Cat Grin, and Down the Rabbit Hole. Twelve. Queen Victoria was a fan. After reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Queen Victoria suggested that Carol dedicate his next work to her. What a shock. (laughs) She probably should have been more specific. Carol was a mathematician, so his next work was an elementary treatise on on determinants with their application to simultaneous linear equations and algebraic equations. Well, (laughs) he presented it to the queen and one can only imagine her reaction. Who is anything like my little huff and puff there. I'm like, sir, (laughs) 
Number 13, these books have been banned before. Well, duh. I, yeah. Alice, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the sequel, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, were both banned in China in 1931. Only in China? That's the shocking part here. <laughs> I mean. That's truly the shocking part here. Why? On the grounds that animals should not use human language. Okay. Well, don't watch Shrek, China. <laughs> don't watch Mulan. You're missing out. Well, they definitely probably have Mulan banned over there. Number 14. The book has never been out of print. Since it was published in 1865, it has been translated into 176 languages. At the time, the book was so popular that its sequel, Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There, sold out within seven weeks of its publication. So, those are my fun facts about Alice in Wonderland, one of my favorite books, movies, series, all that stuff. I know that... Um sci-fi did like a little um movie series little adaptation on alice in wonderland i think it's called alice but i feel like there's only a few people i've come across that actually know this yes it's called alice it came out in 2009 yes it was so good and it's two episodes long. They're like, I think, two hours each. But it was, you know, a sci-fi version of it. And it was really neat. I'm surprised Nathaniel hasn't watched that yet. It's very, like, it's one of those ones that you either have to buy it. Or you have to be very lucky to catch it on, like, a streaming service. Which yeah. I think is what I did. Was I caught it on a streaming service. And then it was gone. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland is one of my favorites. I am and always have been one of the weirdos. And so, I don't know. I get it. I get the Mad Hatter. I get the Cheshire Cat. I definitely want like an Alice in Wonderland themed tattoo somewhere at some point. But that is beyond the scope of conversation for today. If I start that conversation now, we will be here for another three hours. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode. You can always find us on our social media accounts. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. They are all Tequila She Wrote across the board. You can also email us with any case suggestions, cocktail recipes, liquor, wine, beer recommendations. Just to say hello, I love you, pop by, whatever you want to do. That is Tequila She Wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes and you get a little bonus episode. We also have some tiers that you just pay a little more and you get even more bonus content. Sloan does a Ruining Paradise. I do a Haunted series. It's all on what you feel like you want out of our Patreon. If there's something there that you think we could add or like Something we don't even realize that maybe we could do for you. <laughs> Let us know. Just send us an email or a message somewhere. We'll try to look into it, see what we think. And, yeah. Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express today. Toot toot. Beep beep. <laughs>